our Lord Jesus Christ was really disappointing, if you think about it. From a human perspective, what a disappointing start to three years of ministry. Remember, Jesus came to His hometown in Nazareth where He'd grown up. People knew Him there for 30 years. He came and He went to the synagogue as was His pattern and He opened up the Word of God, read from the prophet Isaiah. He expounded and explained that passage in the Word of God and He said, today this Scripture has been fulfilled in your midst. And initially the, the, the people... The, the people in the synagogue were amazed at, at the words that were pouring forth from his mouth, but soon they shifted and they said, is this not Joseph's son? He's so ordinary. We've known him our whole lives. And Jesus then exposes their hearts, not only with that sermon, but he begins to, to stir up their hearts and to prod down into their hearts and expose who they really are with the truth of His Word, to expose that His friends in Nazareth, as nice as they were for 30 years, truly were needy. Truly were needy sinners. They were poor in spirit. That they, they were the ones that were needing to be released from the iron bars of the jail of sin. That they were the blind ones that were just going through religious motions like many of the Jews that day. And they needed a Savior to open up their eyes. And then, shockingly, He sat down and said, Today, this Scripture has been fulfilled in your midst. And so initially, they were filled with excitement but soon it turned to rage. And if you were joining us for the first time today, here's what happened after Jesus' first sermon. They were initially excited, but it didn't take long until His own hometown friends were trying to usher Him off a cliff and chuck Him off. Day one of ministry. How's that for a disappointing start for a ministry? Kind of discouraging. Well, Jesus doesn't give up. It's his, very, it's his food to do the will of His Father. And so, He heads down to the Sea of Galilee. He leaves Nazareth. That's not going well. He leaves Nazareth, heads down to the north part of the Sea of Galilee, up in, up in Galilee. He heads down there because it's 600 feet below sea level from where he was in Nazareth. So he's heading downhill to Galilee to the city of Capernaum. And there, as it was his custom, he found the synagogue on the Sabbath again. And guess what he's going to do? Getting right back to his ministry of preaching. Preaching the gospel. He goes then to Capernaum to gather, to preach. And the word was on the street about Jesus. And he was... Um, causing quite a stir. And so believe me, in Capernaum that day, in that synagogue, they were listening. And I'm telling you, they were going to not only hear something, but they were going to see something that they would never forget for their whole life. You say, what is it? Tell me. Well, turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 4. Matthew, Mark, Luke. Luke chapter 4 and find our passage today in verse 31, and we'll find out what they saw and what they heard. Luke chapter 4, find verse 31. I love the sound of turning pages. Verse 31. Speaking of Jesus now, he's already he passed through the midst of the the people of Nazareth who were filled with rage, in verse 31, and he came down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee, and he was teaching them on the Sabbath. And they were amazed at his teaching, for the message was with authority. In the synagogue, there was a man possessed by the spirit of an unclean demon. 
And he cried out with a loud voice, Let us alone. What business do we have with each other, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be quiet and come out of him. And when the demon had thrown him down in the midst of the people, he came out of him without doing him any harm. And amazement came upon them all. And they began talking with one another, saying, What is this message? Literally, what is this word? For with authority and power he commands the unclean spirits, and they come out. And the report about him was spreading into every locality in the surrounding district. What does Luke want us to know about Jesus as he begins his ministry performing his very first miracle? He makes it clear. Look at verse 31. Okay? They were amazed at his teaching, for his message was, was with what? Authority. Take a look at verse 36. The end of the section. What is this message? For with authority and power he commands the unclean spirits and they come out. And for those of you scholars, the Greek word is actually fronted up for emphasis. So authority is emphatic and repeated at the beginning and end of the text. Here is the message of Luke. He wants us to know something about Jesus. Jesus is one with all authority. Jesus Christ, listen, Jesus Christ has the ultimate authority over all things, including demons. And so, He has authority over me and over you. That is the message of this text. And this morning then we're going to look at five aspects of the authority of our Lord Jesus Christ in our passage. Five aspects. For the visitors, we have a bulletin insert if you want to follow along and take notes. It's a place you can do that. Number one then, the first aspect of the authority of Jesus is the focus of His authority in verses 31 and 32. The focus of His authority. Look at verse 32. Now, we're going to do it again. Verse 32. Look at verse 32. Compare it with verse 36 again. And look for another repeated word. (laughs) Not just authority. There's another word that's repeated. And they were amazed at His teaching for His message or His word was with authority. Verse 36. What is this? There it is again. What is this message? Or same word. What is this word for with authority? The focus of the authority of our Lord Jesus Christ is on His Word. That's what Luke wants us to see. That is the nexus. That is the focus of the authority of Christ. And no wonder when Jesus started teaching then, they were absolutely amazed. They, in fact, that word amazed is, is a strong word. It's the idea of being shocked or astounded by something. And the text says he taught and they were amazed because he taught the word with authority. They were not used to that. In the days of Jesus Christ, the scribes and the Pharisees did not teach with authority. They kind of quoted people 24-7. It was someone else. It was always someone else. There was no authority. It was second-hand information. And so the people that would go to, to the synagogue, right, weekly, going to church in that day, as it were, they were used to, guess what? They were used to legalism. They were used to rules. They were used to quotes. They were used to, frankly, being bored stiff. 
They were used to five views on everything. They were used to joyless, lifeless, impractical, chainless, changeless teaching. In other words, they were not used to the Word of God being preached. They weren't used to the Word of God cutting their souls. They weren't used to conviction of sin. They weren't used to confidence in God and hope in God. They weren't used to the preaching of the Word of God. Jesus was different. Jesus came and He preached the Word. He explained the Scriptures. He unpacked the Scriptures. His teaching was full of truth. His teaching was, thus saith the Lord. His teaching was full of illustration and it was memorable. It was practical. It was powerful. Let me say it this way, as the scholar Bach said. He says it great. This, ironically I'm quoting, the scribes taught from tradition, Jesus taught from the text, close quote. Directly and independently, God's word was sufficient. And there's more. There's more behind his authority. You know that. We heard it this morning in the beginning, in John chapter 1, in the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. This is the very Word of God in the flesh speaking. The Son of God speaking. Can you imagine the authority that he would exude? As he taught, he is the new Moses. He is the greater Moses. Here's the kind of authority that he said as he expounded the Old Testament scriptures. He came on and he said even more as he was demolishing the strongholds of legalism. You've heard it said, but I say to you. How's that for the authority of the word of Christ? Here is what Luke wants us to see clearly. Because he repeats it twice, same words. The message, the word of Jesus Christ has authority. This is the whole point of Luke chapter 4. Jesus was called the preacher. Here again we see he's called the preach. Verse 43 says, I must preach the kingdom of God to other cities also, for I was sent for this purpose. And so the text says he kept on preaching. Before any miracle has ever occurred in this book, we are inundated, we are overflowed with repeated points. It's the word of Christ that's the point. It's the word of Christ that has authority. We're overwhelmed with that truth. The message of Christ has authority. And listen, let me just apply this. That is why we believe in this church in expository preaching. You say, what do you mean? What's that? That is this. My opinion does not count. God's Word counts. The original authorial intent of the author under the power of the Spirit is what counts. We labor to find what that is and we proclaim it even if I get tarred and feathered. I like to say, look, I'm the mailman. Don't shoot the mailman. Listen, we need to preach the Word of God. We need to expose that expository, expose the meaning of the text because the authority, the power is in the very Word of God to change. That's the part that's living and active and able to get in there and prod and divide, if it were even possible, the soul and the spirit. That's how the Word of God can dig. We need then to preach the text. Well, the best compliment that I would ever get or Dan would ever get was this. You pay pure attention to the text. That would be the best compliment. We need to pray that the Holy Spirit would speak through His Word. And we need to preach with authority. Not because it's my authority. It's the authority of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's the authority of the triune God right here. Bring me the book. Bring me the book of God, Pastor Jeff. Don't give me anything else. Pastor Dan in a blog wrote yesterday. Good blog. Read it. 
to the extent the preacher is preaching the Scripture, the God of the universe is speaking. The Word of Christ has authority. If anything is to happen in our midst, it's because we're faithful to preach with authority the Word of God. Remember what the prophet Isaiah said in Isaiah 55 verse 11. Isaiah 55 11, My word that goes forth from my mouth shall accomplish that which I purpose and prosper in the thing for which I sent it. The focus of the authority of our Lord Jesus Christ is the Word of God. So Jesus is preaching and teaching in the synagogue that day. Everyone's listening intently, trying to keep their kids still so they can hear the Word of God. And they're all into it because he's pretty, right? And then all of a sudden, there's an interruption. There's a massive interruption. And that takes us from the focus of his authority to secondly, the second aspect, the challenge to his authority. The challenge to his authority in verses 33 and 34. So here they are. They're at church in the synagogue. And they're listening to Jesus preach. And you can probably hear a pin drop. And there's a man in there in the third row. I don't know. He's in the middle. He's in the midst. He's not in the back row. And he's listening to Jesus preach and teach the text. And the text says he's there among them, one, there was one among them, literally having an unclean spirit. That's what the text says. Now, I think the translation possessed is a good one. That's what it means to have an unclean spirit. Somehow it's true, men and women... Children can be inhabited by unclean spirits. Not true believers, but unbelievers can be inhabited by unclean spirits. We are more than just this stuff. We are body and soul. And I think, and and they translate it this way, but you have to make a decision. I think unclean spirit refers then to a fallen angel. Let's call what we know it by a demon. This is a demon. I realize that we're spending billions and billions of dollars searching for life outside this planet. Whatever, right? But I'm telling you, there's life outside this planet. There, is, there are angels and demons in this universe. And all of their ranks... You see, remember after the creation of this world and and angels were created and Lucifer, the angel of light, in his pride, wanting to be God, took with him a third of the angels and they fell and rebelled against God and they were fallen. These are fallen angels, these demons. And since that beginning, there's been a war going on between angels and demons. It's called spiritual warfare. And those of you who are here in Daniel know that we got a glimpse into the nature of spiritual warfare. In Daniel chapter 10, that, that angels and demons influence people and persons, but they also influence at the big picture national level. And there's political influence and all of that. And we know that the the prince and the power of the air, the devil himself is a simple, he's just an unclean spirit. He is the chief of the fallen demons, demons a created being, but one who has in this age authority over the present darkness of this world and utilizes and emphasizes the curse of sin. And listen to me, unbelievers are his children. And demonic thoughts pound the brains of the unregenerate from this fallen world and the system and is fueled by a demonic infusion into their brains. They work through lies and deception. And demons can even take up residence within them. Not everybody, but it happens and it still happens and it's real. And it's shocking where it comes from. 
It comes from within the synagogue. They're at church. It's within the church. Someone who would be gathering to worship, sitting in a good spot in the middle, claiming to love God, coming to the Word of God, attending that synagogue worship and its prayers and its reading of the Scripture and its teaching and its singing and the benediction and all of that. There he is. I guess we might expect, because Hollywood has told us to expect this, that the demon-possessed inhabit the tombs in the night, and they do, in the darkness or some creepy forest. Well, we find a man possessed by the demon at church, in the synagogue, the gathering of those who are worshiping Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And there is Jesus. He's preaching there. It's all quiet except for His voice. And suddenly... There's a loud voice and the demon using the vocal cords of a man speaks directly to Jesus. Let us alone. What business do we have with each other, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. And that first word the demon says is a tough word. It could be translated aha or let me be or a combination this, I'll tell you something, this demon does not want to show himself. This demon is freaking out. This demon is terrified. He recognizes who this is, that this is the Son of God. This is Jesus the Messiah. This is the one who has the power over the darkness. This is the one who's going to speak one word, and lo, our doom is sure. Usually the demons like to keep quiet and just deceive subtly. They don't want to make themselves known, but not today, not in the synagogue in the presence of the God-man. He shrieks out because he freaks out. And I'm telling you, he's full of terror. He's full of emotion. He's full of surprise. He's full of displeasure. It's all there, all in the Greek text. He's threatened. We have nothing to do with each other. Leave me alone. Make no mistake about it. The unclean spirit fears the Holy One. He fears the God-man, Jesus Christ. And now he says, have you come to destroy us? Why does he use the word us? I don't think it's because there were more than one demon possessing this man, although that's possible. I don't think so. I think this, at the beginning of his ministry, it's as if this demon is using this plural us because he's talking to all the one-third of fallen angels, the demonic horde, and he's saying, are you here? Is this the time of our destruction? This is not what I was told. Are you here to cast us into the abyss like those angels that transgressed their grounds that have already been thrown into the place of holding? Is it even worse? Are you here to cast us into the lake of fire? Is our doom up? Are you here to destroy us? Is Jesus, are you going to use your authority right now and cast us into the lake of fire and to bring us to an end to ruin? I know who you are. You can do this sort of thing. You're the Holy One of God. So the demon knows that Jesus of Nazareth is the Son of God, the Holy One, therefore the sinless one, the Messiah, the one filled, the one anointed with the Holy Spirit beyond measure. And it reminds me of a verse, as it is reminding you, of James chapter 2, remember? The demon's also believe that God is one. They understand the Trinity way better than we do. The demons believe that God is one and they shudder. James chapter 2. The demons know more about God than the atheist does. The demons know more about God than the liberal theologians do. The demons know more about God than many biblical scholars and their ivory towers. It's a shame to all those in that synagogue and in churches today that our knowledge of Jesus is so nondescript and so watered down that even the demons have better theology than we do. 
But the demons are not saved. They do not love the truth. They do not bend the, the knee to Jesus. It's simply head knowledge. Could it be, now listen to me, this was me for 27 years. Could it be that there are those of us that name the name of Christ, I believe in God, I'm a Christian, that even would sit week after week in a place where the Word of God is preached, just filling our heads up with more head knowledge but not with a heart to love Jesus, not with a heart to follow Him, not really amazed at Him, not speaking of Him, not spreading His name and fame in the districts. Could it be, could it be that we are under the thumb of demonic deception? I like what J.C. Ryle said, he said, quotes, We may have our memories well stored with its leading texts and be able to talk glibly about its leading doctrines. And all this time, the Bible may have no influence over our hearts, our wills, and consciences. We may in reality be nothing better than the devils. End quotes. I'm going through Pilgrim's Progress. It's not my notes, but I'm saying it. We're going through Pilgrim's Progress with the kids again. Great book. And we're on the part about talkative, the guy with all the head knowledge that can talk all about it. That's what he wants to do. But he, when he lives his life in private, he's far from God and he does not love him and he lives a life that's not pleasing to the Lord with no conviction of sin. And that's what I want to drive home here. Do you just know about Jesus? Kids, listen. Do you just know about Jesus or do you know Jesus? Are we hungry for God's Word? Do we hate our sin and fight against it? Are we content just saying, I understand that and I'm going to church? Or do we love Him and rejoice that we're saved by Him? Before we move on, I want us to recognize that demon faith Demon faith, that head knowledge faith, will not save you. Let me say it this way. Head knowledge alone is demonic. The demons also believe, and frankly, they're more emotional about it than we are. At least they shudder. Listen, their theology about who Jesus is is sound, but their theology, they know that they will be destroyed in the end with the authority of one like a son of man. When he comes in power, they know that they are in big trouble. They're very emotional about it, very biblical. They know that this Christ has authority over them. They know that they will end up in the lake of fire. They know that they will end up there because of their rebellion against the Most High God, and they feel terror of it. Not only do they know more here, I sometimes think they know more here. The most demonic thing of all, listen, the most demonic thing of all is to be blah about the Holy One of God. So we've seen the focus of His authority, we've seen the challenge to His authority, and now let's see how Jesus responds to this interruption from a fallen angel. Number three, the exercise of of his authority in verse 35. What is Jesus going to do with this interruption? Well, it's kind of a, here, here they are, Jesus is preaching, they are, they are just hanging on every word that he's saying. It's kind of quiet, everyone, okay, and Jesus is teaching. Can you imagine the shock to the senses to have this demon shriek out? Well, it's a bad interruption, but let me tell you something. It isn't that shocking to the people of that day. They've seen, seen demon possession before. This isn't the shock here. Exorcisms in that culture, or I should say would-be exorcisms, were all too common. What would Jesus do? Would He be like the ex- all the other exorcists with His spells and 
his incantations, if you know that word. They're pleading and they're cajoling. I like what Pastor Lloyd said. Would, would they place some food outside the person and try to cajole the demon to come out of him? What would they do? What trick would they pull? What would Jesus do? Would he be like the pathetic exorcist of the, of the day? No, no. Jesus doesn't do anything. Jesus, with a word, the word of Christ has authority. The word of Christ is powerful. Verse 35 says, but Jesus rebuked him, saying, be quiet, come out of him. Why does he tell him to be quiet? Everybody writes pages and pages about this. Maybe it's because he doesn't want to be authenticated by a demon. Maybe because it's not time for the people to know certain facts about him. I think all of those things miss the point. They miss the point of the context. I think Jesus is a man. And I think Jesus has had it with the devil after 40 days in the wilderness trying to quote the Bible to him. I speak the truth around here. Be quiet. And as a matter of fact, Jesus is so powerful that Jesus is the one that allowed him to talk in the first place. Here, go ahead. Say if you think. Got that done? Now be quiet to show why does he allow him to speak? Why does he tell him to be quiet? So he can tell people that he has the authority to do so. That's why. All these other speculations. Jesus has authority through his word. You can see the people looking to Jesus, then looking to, the, look to Jesus. I mean, this must have been quite a deal. Now, the demon is completely under the thumb of Jesus Christ. The darkness of the demonic realm must respond to the word of God. I'm going to say that again. Because that's encouraging for sinners like us. The darkness of the demonic world in all of its system and its curse must respond, must obey completely the word of our Lord Jesus Christ. They don't have to be happy about it. He wasn't happy about it. He threw the man down and the parallel passage that Jason read, he convulsed him all over the place. But Jesus said, you can convulse away a little bit. Watch this. I have authority over even that. The text says, and he was not harmed. Why is that detail there? To show us that Jesus will not allow this demon to harm him. And I'm telling you, if you are in Christ and you put your faith in Christ, he will not allow the darkness to harm you forever. No harm will come to you in Christ. He has authority Go ahead, do your little thing. Throw your little temper tantrum. He doesn't have to like it. He doesn't like it. Could, could the demon have harmed this guy? Well, Acts chapter 19, a bunch of demons thrashed some people. Um, and my kids would say, gave them a beat down. Ripped their clothes off, sent them out screaming and bloody out of the house. Acts chapter 19. As a point, in fact, he could have harmed him. Jesus would not allow it. He has authority over the darkness. So, darkness must submit to the authority of Christ. Now, we're going to see some amazing things in the book of Luke. We're going to see next week or whenever I'm up that fevers flee in the presence of Jesus. We're going to see many people physically healed. We're going to see their minds set free from the demonic deception and demons actually expulsed like right here out of people. But we have to ultimately understand that these are simply symptoms. These are not the point. These are simply manifestations of sin. They're simply manifestations of the curse on mankind for their rebellion against God. Ultimately, it's not a physical fever that's the problem. Ultimately, it's not even demon possession that's the problem. The problem is that we're sold under sin, that we are fallen and dead in sin, that we're in bondage to sin, that we're held captive by sin, that we're blind to our own sin, that we're blind of the glory of Christ. We're just not, they weren't there in the synagogue, just innocent bystanders just going looking back and forth, eating their popcorn, watching the show. No, they were culpable. They were just in trouble. 
And this, you're not innocent here either. If you're like those amazed bystanders and you're outside of Jesus Christ, you're under the power of the evil one. And, and, and Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 2, Ephesians chapter 2, you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath. That's the problem. That's the point. That's why preaching the Word and the Spirit empowering it is the point. These are all pictures and symbols of it. These are all physical symptoms of the underlying disease and corruption of sin. That's what Jesus came to set us free from. Jesus is able to deliver you from your sin today. And you know what? He won't deliver you partially and you finish it off. He won't deliver you in six months when you get around to helping Him out. He restores and delivers you from sin immediately with His spoken Word. Fully and completely forever. We have a Savior. We have a Savior that is greater than all our sin. We have a Savior, as John writes in 1 John 3.8, the Son of God appeared for this purpose, to destroy the works of the devil. We have a Savior who was willing to take the forces of all of the darkness and hang there naked and bleeding upon the cross of Calvary. We have a Savior who is willing to have the forces of darkness and all of our sin, the whole curse, all of the sin of everyone who would ever believe, and, and the white hot wrath of God poured out upon him on the cross of Calvary, that in his own body he experienced the full white hot wrath of God, whatever the lake of fire would be like to be in there forever. He felt that for all of us in six hours upon the tree. The irony is he experienced in his own body the very thing the demons were terrified of, the complete apollyon, the complete destruction of his body. But because he was the God-man, it did not consume him. That he consumed it in six hours and said, it is finished and his heart exploded. He was buried. In three days he rose from the dead and he conquered darkness. He took the head of that serpent of old, the devil, and he stomped on it at the cross of Calvary. And he arose from the grave and he finished your sin. That is the redemption that He offers today. If He takes your fever away, great. Is that the point? It's the picture. It always has been. It always will be. The point is the preaching of the Word of God through the Spirit to free us from our sin. The question we're going to have is, are you going to be bored with this and say, go blah and go home and watch sports? Which I don't have any necessary problem with, watching sports once in a while. Or are you going to respond to what Jesus is saying here? That leads us to the next heading here, the response to His authority in verses 36 and 37. There are so many responses to His authority, aren't there? I mean, one response is, is this over yet? Second response would be this. Now be careful, I'm not trying to be mean here. Because I'm, li- I'm like you. Not listening to this because you're thinking of this. Can believers be possessed? Can we cast out demons today? And going down the row and looking up cross-references right now. The point is not about you and your ability to cast out demons. The point is about Jesus and His ability to cast out demons. The point is not even that. The point is the authority of the Christ through His Word. But let me answer your questions. No, believers cannot be possessed. Yes, demon possession still happens today. Um, the demons are fairly smart. When, they, when people try to cast them out, look, hold on a second, who are you? I know Paul, and I know Jesus, but who are you? And he thrashed them. 
I wouldn't recommend playing that game. I think in America, the demons are, are possessing people, but I think they're quiet about it because it's going through lies. Distortion of the truth. He doesn't want to show himself. Yes, if you're going to see demon possession today, maybe you'll see it, but I think you'll see it on the points of contact in foreign lands when the lands are in darkness. And in that case, be very careful what you do. What I would do, and I'll quote the Master Seminary Systematic Theology, if one encounters a truly demonized person, then he must recognize the strength of the enemy, appeal to God in prayer, use the power of Scripture, especially the gospel, to deal with the situation, end quotes. That's what I would do. I don't know if it's right, but I need Jesus, and I'm going to preach the gospel, and I'm going to pray and, let, and see what happens. But that's not the point. But now we've got to get that clear so we can get to the point. The point is, are you going to respond to the authority of Jesus? And how would we respond? I'm telling you, if the, if the Holy Spirit is here working in your hearts, so there's three ways that you will respond. Number one, with amazement. Amazement. The text says there in verse 36, and amazement came upon them all. Stop right there. They had seen exorcisms before, partial, pathetic, manipulative exorcisms, but they never seen anything like Jesus. A word and gone. And they were amazed because seeing Jesus work live was amazing. Was it boring to be around Jesus? Then? Not now either. How do we respond to Jesus? With amazement. If Christianity, listen, don't let the word the world fool you. Being a Christian, being set free from sin and having a hope of heaven is not boring. It's not. Christianity isn't boring. We are still amazed. Aren't we brothers and sisters? We are still amazed that He would save a sinner like me. What kind of grace is it? Amazing grace. That's what kind of grace it is. And amazing that that day... Even as an older person, age 27, some of you even older, he freed me. He caused me to pass out of death and into life. He gave me hope when I had none. He, he took all of my sin away, not part of it. I'm free in him, amazing grace. So we start with amazement. And secondly, here's how we respond. We respond by conversation. They're talking. And the, the text says, and they began talking with one another, saying... They began talking with one another. Isn't how, how it works, brothers and sisters? We, we just love talking about what Jesus has done for us. We like digging into his word together. That's true of us. We want to know more. We're not interested in sham religion. We're interested in being set free. And we love it. We love to talk about it. But listen... We, we're amazed by it. We talk about it. But if the good news has hit our hearts, then there's another thing that we do. Look at verse 37. We love to spread it. We love to, yes, we're amazed by it. Yes, we like to talk about it among the saints, but we love to spread the good news. Look at verse 37. And the report about him was spreading into every locality in the surrounding district. Why were they so amazed? They were amazed, and this is amazing here. Listen, they were amazed at the Word. What is this message, the text says, with authority and power? And even in the parallel passage in Mark, it says back in Mark chapter 1, they were all amazed so that they debated among themselves, saying, what is this? A new teaching. With authority, he commands even the unclean spirits and they obey him. They were amazed at the word of Jesus Christ. Now listen to me for a second. Here's what I think we need to hear about this. That the words of Jesus, as he confronted the darkness live, his word was a message. It was part of the message. As he preached the truth... The Word of God is authoritative. That was part of the message. But Jesus speaking, right? Coming along and speaking and doing, that too was the message. Listen, the miracle is a message. It's not to sit and be 
wowed at and go home and ignore Jesus. The miracle is causing us and saying, who is he? And does he have this kind of authority over my life? Can he set me free? Is he worthy of following? The miracle is the message, is a message. The Gospel of John makes that explicit, where the signs are, have their significance explained. The other Gospel writers don't make it clear, but I'm telling you, the point is not the miracle. The point is the one to whom the miracle points, and the message and the call it is to be set free. The miracle is a message. So, we ought to be amazed about this, talk about this, and spread this around. This word of Christ that has full authority over the darkness. So the question is, how are you going to respond? We know how they responded in that day. How are you going to respond? Is it going to be a superficial response or is it going to be a saving response? Is this going to be the day that you, like that man, which was simply a picture, the demonic possession, are you going to be set free from bondage to sin? Or are you going to have a superficial response to our Lord Jesus Christ? You know, it's one thing, I think some of you have had friends, some of people maybe who don't know the Lord and seen God change them, seen the power of the cross. You've also seen a lot of horrible things done in the name of Christ. But at the end of the day, um, if those people in the synagogue with their popcorn and their glances just were amazed at what happened, but they, but they didn't take in the message of who Jesus was and were, weren't willing to be set free from their sin by Him, it wouldn't matter. It wouldn't matter how they responded to that. I, we love to, to think about like Isaac, uh, John Newton, I mean, horrible guy, a slave trader and on a ship, horrible man who participated in such darkness. And then God, in the day of his power, in that storm on that ship, set him free from his sin and he became a gospel preacher. He was the one who wrote the hymn, Amazing Grace, How Sweet the Sound, that saved a wretch like me. You can say, that's a great story. Isn't that amazing? But the, I don't really, frankly, no, no, sorry, John, don't care about you right now. I care about us. What is your response to Christ? I don't want secondhand amazement. Listen, secondhand amazement's not going to get us home. Has Christ forgiven you? Are you freed from the, by the power of the authoritative word of Christ? Let me tell you something, our last heading as we close. The final aspect, the kindness of his authority. If you are sitting in your seat and you're wondering, you know, maybe this is, there's something here. And let me tell you something about Jesus. You're not too far gone. You're not. Jesus is really good at what he does. He is not bored with you nor freeing people from their sin. It's his fastball. I say that respectfully. He's not bored with it. He wants to do this. He delights in doing this. It's the very heart of our compassionate and merciful Savior. That poor guy sitting there deceived and sitting in the synagogue service. The poor guy. I mean, I know what I would do. Would you be quiet? This is a good sermon. Kind of pathetic. You're super annoying for sure and really hypocritical. Not Jesus. He's not going like this. He longs to free this man. This is his very heart. Jesus is so sympathetic towards all of us sinners. He can free you. He has the authority to do that. But that's not enough for us. It isn't. We need to know he's not only strong enough, We need to know He is sympathetic and willing to do it. And I'm here to tell you, He will free you. And if the Son makes you free, you will be free indeed. And nothing will harm you forever. He can free you from yourself. He can free you from your sin. He will do for you 
what he did for that man. That man was possessed by an unclean spirit. And you know what? It's unclean because that spirit was in rebellion. And just like us, we are unclean. And Jesus comes along and he says, I am willing. Be clean. And he cleanses you. And in that moment that you receive that, all of your defilement, every sin, thought, word, and deed is gone, removed as far as the east is from the west. And the perfect, pure righteousness of Jesus Christ clothes you like a robe. By simple faith, recognizing your uncleanness, he will make you, he will make you clean. As the prophet says, though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. I'm telling you, if you are indifferent to Jesus, then you're under the thumb of darkness. Jesus wants to free you this morning. Be released today. He has the authority and compassion to free you. Just say, Lord, I believe this. Help my unbelief. I am unclean. I see it. I've seen it. I haven't admitted it. You can make me clean. Forgive me, Lord. Fill me. Help me. I want to follow you. Cry out to him today. And brothers and sisters, those of you who are already clean, stop wondering if you're unclean all the time. You will come to no harm. All right? Can we move on and get on with it? Follow Christ? Now, and, and, when he says it in his word, he has authority over us still in his word. If he says it, that settles it. The first miracle of Jesus, the word of Jesus Christ, has ultimate authority over all things, even the demons, and so his word has authority over you as well. May we be filled with fresh excitement, fresh conversation, and a fresh zeal for spreading the name and the fame and the power and the, and the compassion of our Lord Jesus Christ to every locality around this building and beyond. May we be able to rejoice like Luther did at the matchless authority of our Lord Jesus Christ over the darkness. When he wrote this great hymn of the faith, did we in our own strength confide our striving would be losing. We're not the right man on our side, the man of God's own choosing. Dost ask who that may be? Christ Jesus, it is He. Lord Sabaoth, His name from age to age the same. And He must win the battle.